This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Abel Baker Charlie Dog by Stephanie Vaughn. My father's voice grew lower, fuller. We sat under the sound of it and felt safe. The story was chosen by Taya Obrecht whose novel The Tiger's Wife, which was excerpted in The New Yorker, was a finalist for this year's National Book Award. Last year, her story Blue Water Gin was featured in our 20 Under 40 fiction issue. She joins me from the studios of Cornell University. Hi, Taya. Hi, Deborah. So Stephanie Vaughn teaches at Cornell, where, where you did your MFA. Were you a student of hers? I was, you know, and uh, she was an incredible teacher um, and a great mentor to me. And uh, I actually hadn't read her work until I was no longer her student. Were you avoiding it on purpose? I think to some degree, yes. I, I think that if you find that you don't have similarities with a mentor in, in the way you approach your work, uh, you know, you, you sort of tend to shy away from their advice. And uh, it turns out that uh, I absolutely admire and love her work. Uh, and I wish I had known this before, before <laughs> I had uh, been her student. <laughs> so did you read her uh, story collection right after you finished? Yes, I did. Yes. I read Sweet Talk. And, uh, you know, it's it's coming back into print now, which I think is just amazing uh, at the beginning of next year. A few years ago, Tobias Wolf did a uh, fiction podcast with me about Vaughn's story Dog Heaven, which was also in that collection, Sweet Talk. And both stories involved the, the same female narrator who's called Gemma. And there are, in fact, five stories in the book which, which involve her. And do you think that those stories form a kind of mini novel within the collection? You know, I think that they're definitely linked in that way, and I think that it's it's basically the stories tell different episodes of, of her life and different conflicts, and this one happens to focus on her father. So I, I think that there is something sort of substructural there that, that does hint at a, at a novel, yeah. What is it about Stephanie Vaughn's writing that's most appealing to you? What was it that struck you when you first read the collection? I think it's her voice. It's her perspective on the world. It's her particular view of certain environments, certain scenarios, the pinpointing of something in description where you hear it or you read it and you and you think, my God, that's really how it is. You know, there could be no other way of describing it. And, and that's voice. And also the delivery of um, tragedy through humor, which is something that I, I relate to very much as, as a reader and as a writer as well. Well, Abel Baker, Charlie Dog, the, the title of this story also indicates the first four letters of the phonetic alphabet that the U.S. military was using, I think, until 1956. Is there anything else that, that we should know before we embark on the story? Well, I think uh, we should know that Gemma Jackson is the child of a military officer growing up in uh, Fort Niagara. And this is a story about her relationship with her father. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Taya Obrecht reading Stephanie Vaughn's story, Abel Baker, Charlie Dog. When I was 12 years old, my father was tall and awesome. I can see him walking across the parade ground behind our quarters. The wind blew snow into the folds of his coat and made the hem swoop around his legs. He did not lower his head. He did not jam his hands into the pockets. He was coming home along a diagonal that would cut the parade ground into perfect triangles, and he was not going to be stopped by any snowstorm. I stood at the kitchen door and watched him through a hole I had rubbed in the steamy glass. 
My grandmother and mother fidgeted with pans of food that had been kept warm too long. It was one o'clock on Saturday, and he had been expected home at noon. You want to know what this chicken looks like, said my grandmother. It looks like it died last year. My mother looked into the pan, but didn't say anything. My grandmother believed my mother should have married a minister, not an army officer. Once, my mother had gone out with a minister, and now he was on the radio every Sunday in Ohio. My grandmother thought my father had misrepresented himself as a religious man. There was a story my mother told about their first date. They went to a restaurant, and my father told her he was going to have 12 sons and named them Peter, James, John, etc. And I thought, 12 sons, said my mother. Boy, do I pity your poor wife. My mother had two miscarriages, and then she had me. My father named me Gemma, which my grandmother believed was not even a Christian name. You want to know what this squash looks like? said my grandmother. It'll be fine, said my mother. Just then, the wind gusted on the parade ground, and my father veered to the left. He stopped and looked up. How is it possible you have caught me off guard, he seemed to ask. Exactly where have I miscalculated the velocities? How have I misjudged the vectors? It looks like somebody peed in it, my grandmother said. Keep your voice low, my father told me that day as we ate the ruined squash and chicken. Keep your voice low and you can win any point. We were living in Fort Niagara, a little army post at the juncture of the Niagara River and Lake Ontario. We had been there through the fall and into the winter, as my father, who was second in command, waited for his next promotion. It began to snow in October. The Arctic winds swept across the lake from Canada and shook the windows of our house. Snow drifted across the parade ground, and flows of ice piled up against each other in the river so that if a person were courageous enough or foolhardy enough and also lucky, he could walk the mile across the river to Canada. And always speak in sentences, he told me. You have developed a junior high habit of speaking in fragments. Learn to come to a full stop when you complete an idea. Use semicolons and periods in your speech. My mother put down her fork and knife. Her hands were so thin and light they seemed to pass through the table as she dropped them in her lap. Zachary, perhaps we could save some of the lecture for dessert, she said. My grandmother leaned back into her own heaviness. The poor kid never gets to eat a hot meal, she said. She was referring to the rule that said I could not cut my food or eat while I was speaking or being spoken to, and I was always being spoken to. My father used mealtimes to lecture on the mechanics of life, the how-tos of a civilized world. Normally, I was receptive to his advice, but that day I was angry with him. You know, Dad, I said, I don't think my friends are going to notice a missing semicolon. I thought he would give me a fierce look, but instead he winked. And don't say, you know, he said. He never said, you know, never spoke in fragments, never slurred his speech, even years later, when he had just put away a fifth of scotch and was trying to describe the Eskimo custom of chewing up the meat before it was given to the elders who had no teeth. He spoke with such calculation and precision that his sentences hung over us like high-vaulted ceilings or rolled across the table like ornaments sculptured from stone. It was a huge cathedral of a voice, full of volume and complexity. 
He taught me the alphabet. Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog. It was the alphabet the military used to keep B's separate from V's and I's separate from Y's. He liked the music of it, the way it sounded on his fine voice. I was four years old and my grandmother had not come to live with us yet. We were stationed in Manila and living in a house the army had built on squat stilts to protect us from the insects. There was a typhoon sweeping inland, and we could hear the hoarse sound of metal scraping across the army's paved street. It was the corrugated roof of the house next door. Don't you think it's time we went under the house, my mother said. She was sitting on a duffel bag that contained our tarps and food rations. The house had a loose plank in the living room floor so that if the roof blew away or the walls caved in, we could escape through the opening and sit in the low space between the reinforced floor and the ground until the military rescue bus came. My father looked at me and said, Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog, can you say it, Gemma? I looked up at the dark slope of our own metal roof. Can you say it? Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog, I said. The metal rumbled on the road outside. My mother lifted the plank. We will be all right, he said. Easy, Fox, George, how? Anybody want to join me, said my mother. Easy, I said. Rachel, please put that plank back. Easy, Fox, George, how, I said. My mother replaced the plank and sat on the floor beside me. The storm grew louder. The rain fell against the roof like handfuls of gravel. Item, jig, king. My father's voice grew lower, fuller. We sat under the sound of it and felt safe. Love, Mike, Nan. But then we heard another sound, something that went whap, whap, softly, between the gusts of rain. We tilted our heads toward the shuttered windows. Well said my father, standing up to stretch. I think we're losing a board or two off the side of the house. Where are you going, said my mother. Just where do you think you're going? He put on his rain slicker and went into the next room. When he returned, he was carrying a bucket of nails and a hammer. Obviously, he said, I am going fishing. We moved back to the States when I was six, and he taught me how to play Parcheesi, checkers, chess, cribbage, dominoes, and 20 questions. When you lose, he told me, don't cry. When you win, don't gloat. He taught me how to plant tomatoes and load a shotgun shell. He showed me how to gut a dove, turning it inside out as the Europeans do, using the flexible breastbone for a pivot. He read a great many books and never forgot a fact or a technical description. He explained the principles of crop rotation and the flying buttress. He discussed the defenestration of Prague. When I was in elementary school, he was sent abroad twice on year-long tours, once to Turkey and once to Greenland, both strategic outposts for America's early warning system. I wanted to, but I could not write him letters. His came to me every week, but without the rhythms of his voice, the words seemed pale and flat, like the transparent shapes of cells under a microscope. He did not write about his work because his work was secret. He did not send advice because that he left to my mother and grandmother in his absence. He wrote about small things, 
The smooth white rocks he found on a mountainside in Turkey, the first fresh egg he ate in Greenland. When I reread the letters after he died, I was struck by their grace and invention. But when I read them as a child, I looked through the words, eggs, shipment, frozen, and there was nothing on the other side but the great vacuum of his missing voice. I can't think of anything to say, I told my mother the first time she urged me to write to him. He had already been in Turkey for three months. She stood behind me at the heavy library table and smoothed my hair, touched my shoulders. Tell him about your tap lessons, she said. Tell him about ballet. Dear Dad, I wrote, I am taking tap lessons. I am also taking ballet. I tried to imagine what he looked like. I tried to put a face before my face, but it was gray and featureless, like the face of a statue worn flat by wind and rain. And I hope you have a happy birthday next month, I concluded, hoping to evade the necessity of writing him again in three weeks. The autumn I turned 12, we moved to Fort Niagara, which was the administrative base for the missile sites strung along the Canadian border between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. It was a handsome post, full of oak trees, brick buildings, and history. The French had taken the land from the Indians and built the original fort. The British took the fort from the French, and the Americans took it from the British. My father recounted the battles for us as we drove there along the wide sweep of the Niagara River, past apple orchards and thick pastures. My grandmother sat in the back seat and made a note of each red convertible that passed. I was supposed to be counting the white ones. When we drove through the gate and saw the post for the first time, the expanses of clipped grass, the tall trees, the row of colonial houses overlooking the river, my grandmother put down her tablet and said, This is some post. She looked at my father admiringly, the first indication she had ever given that he might be a good match for my mother after all. She asked to be taken to the far end of the post where the old fort was. It sat on a point of land at the juncture of the lake and river and looked appropriately warlike with its moat and tiny gun windows, but it was surprisingly small, a simple square of yellow stone. Is this all there is? I said as my grandmother and I posed for pictures on the drawbridge near two soldiers dressed in Revolutionary War costumes. It was hard to imagine that chunks of a vast continent had been won and lost within the confines of a fortress hardly bigger than Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland. Later, as we drove back along the river, my father said in his aphoristic way, sometimes the biggest battles are the smallest ones. The week after we settled in our quarters, we made the obligatory trip to the falls. It was a sultry day, Indian summer, and our eyes began to water as we neared the chemical factories that surround the city of Niagara Falls. We stopped for iced tea, and my father explained how the glaciers had formed the escarpment through which the falls had cut a deep gorge. Escarpment. That was the term he used instead of cliff. It skidded along the roof of his mouth and entered the conversation with a soft explosion. We went to the Niagara Falls Museum and examined the containers people had used successfully to go over the falls early in the century when there was a $1,000 prize given to survivors. Two were wooden barrels strapped with metal bands. One was a giant rubber ball reinforced with a steel cage. A fourth was a long steel capsule. On the walls were photographs of each survivor 
and plaques explaining who had been injured and how. The steel capsule was used by a man who had broken almost every bone in his body. The plaque said that he was in the hospital for 23 weeks and then took his capsule around the world on a speaking tour. One day, when he was in New Zealand, he slipped on an orange peel, broke his leg, and later died of complications. We went next to Goat Island and stood on the open bank to watch the leap and dive of the white water. My mother held her handbag close to her breasts. She had a habit of always holding things this way, a stack of dinner plates, the dish towel, some mail she had brought in from the porch. She hunched over slightly so that her body seemed at once to be protective and protected. I don't like the river, she said. I think it wants to hypnotize you. My father put his hands in his pockets to show how at ease he was, and my grandmother went off to buy an ice cream cone. At the observation point, we stood at a metal fence and looked into the frothing water at the bottom of the gorge. We watched bits and pieces of rainbows appear and vanish in the sunlight that was refracted off the water through the mist. My father pointed to a black shape in the rapids above the Horseshoe Falls. That's a river barge, he said. He lowered his voice so that he could be heard under the roar of the water. A long time ago, there were two men standing on that barge waiting to see whether in the next moment of their lives they would go over. He told us the story of the barge then, how it had broken loose from a tug near Buffalo and floated down river gathering speed. The two men tore at the air, waved and shouted to people on shore, but the barge entered the rapids. They bumped around over the rocks, and the white water rose in the air. One man, he was the thinking man, said my father, thought they might be able to wedge the barge among the rocks if they allowed the hull to fill with water. They came closer to the falls, 400 yards, 300, before the barge jerked broadside and stopped. They were there all afternoon and night, listening to the sound of the water pounding into the boulders at the bottom of the gorge. The next morning, they were rescued, and one of the men, the thinking man, told the newspapers that he had spent the night playing poker in his head. He played all the hands, and he bluffed himself. He drew to inside straights. If the barge had torn loose from the rocks in the night, he was going to go over the falls saying, five-card draw, jacks are better to open. The other man had sat on the barge, his arms clasped around his knees, and watched the mist blow back from the edge of the falls in the moonlight. He could not speak. The scream of the water entered his body, said my father. He paused to let us think about that. Well, what does that mean? My grandmother said at last. My father rested his arms on the fence and gazed pleasantly at the falls. He went insane. The river fascinated me. I often stood between the yellow curtains of my bedroom and looked down upon it and thought about how deep and swift it was, how black under the glittering surface. The newspaper carried stories about people who jumped over the falls, 14 miles upriver from our house. I thought of their bodies pushed along the soft silt of the bottom, tumbling silently, huddled in upon themselves like fetuses, jilted brides, unemployed factory workers, old people who did not want to go to rest homes, teenagers who got bad grades, young women who fell in love with married men. They floated invisibly past my bedroom window, out into the lake. That winter, I thought I was going to die. I thought I had cancer of the breasts. 
My mother had explained to me about menstruation. She had given me a book about the reproductive systems of men and women, but she had not told me about breasts and how they begin as invisible lumps which become tender and sore. I thought the soreness had begun in a phys ed class one day in December when I was hit in the chest with a basketball. I didn't worry about it, and it went away by New Year's. In January, I found a pamphlet at the bus stop. I was stamping my feet in the cold, looking down at my boots, when I saw the headline, Cancer, Seven Warning Signals. When I got home, I went into the bathroom and undressed. I examined myself for enlarged moles and small wounds that wouldn't heal. I was systematic. I sat on the edge of the tub with the pamphlet by my side and began with my toenails, looking under the tips of them. I felt my soles, arches, ankles. I worked my way up my body, and then I felt the soreness again around both nipples. At dinner that night, I didn't say anything all through the meal. In bed, I slept on my back with my arms stiff against my sides. The next Saturday was the day my father came home late for lunch. The squash sat on the back of the stove and turned to ochre soup. The chicken fell away from the bones. After lunch, he went into the living room and drank scotch and read a book. When I came down for supper, he was still sitting there, and he told my mother he would eat later. My grandmother and my mother and I ate silently at the kitchen table. I took a long bath. I scrubbed my chest hard. I went straight to my bedroom, and after a while, my mother came upstairs and said, What's wrong? I didn't say anything. She stood in front of me with her hands clasped in front of her. She seemed to lean towards her own hands. But you've been acting, you know. And here she laughed self-consciously as she used the forbidden phrase, you know, you've been acting different. You were so quiet today. I went to my chest of drawers and took the pamphlet out from under a stack of folded underpants and gave it to her. What's this? I think I have number four, I said. She must have known immediately what the problem was, but she didn't smile. She asked me to raise my nightgown, and she examined my chest, pressing firmly as if she were a doctor. I told her about the soreness. Here, she said, and here? What about here, too? She told me I was beginning to develop. I knew what she meant, but I wanted her to be precise. You're getting breasts, she said. But I don't see anything. You will. You never told me it would hurt. Oh, dear, I just forgot. When you're grown up, you just forget what it was like. I asked her whether, just to be safe, I could see a doctor. She said that of course I could, and I felt better, as if I'd had a disease and already been cured. As she was leaving the room, I said, Do you think I need a bra? She smiled. I went to sleep watching the snow fall past the window. I had my hands cupped over my new breasts. When I awoke, I did not recognize the window. The snow had stopped, and moonlight slanted through the glass. I could not make out the words, but I heard my father's voice filling up the house. I tiptoed down the back staircase that led to the kitchen and stood in the slice of shadow near the door jamb. My grandmother was telling my mother to pack her bags. He was a degenerate, she said. She had always seen that in him. My mother said, Why, Zachary, why are you doing this? Just go pack your bags, my grandmother said. I'll get the child. My father said conversationally, tensely, Do I have to break your arms? I leaned into the light. He was holding on to a bottle of scotch with one hand, and my mother was trying to pull it away with both of hers. 
He jerked his arm back and forth so that she was drawn into a little dance, back and forth across the linoleum in front of him. The Lord knows the way of righteousness, said my grandmother. Please, said my mother, please, please. And the way of the ungodly shall perish, said my grandmother. Whose house is this, said my father. His voice exploded. He snapped his arm back, trying to take the bottle from my mother in one powerful gesture. It smashed against the wall, and I stepped into the kitchen. The white light from the ceiling fixture burned across the smooth surfaces of the refrigerator, the stove, the white formica countertops. It was as if an atom had been smashed somewhere and a wave of radiation was rolling through the kitchen. I looked him in the eye and waited for him to speak. I sensed my mother and grandmother on either side of me in petrified postures. At last, he said, Well... His voice cracked. The words split in two. Well, he said it again. His face took on a flatness. I'm going back to bed, I said. I went up the narrow steps and he followed me. My mother and grandmother came along behind, whispering. He tucked in the covers and sat on the edge of the bed, watching me. My mother and grandmother stood stiff against the door. I am sorry I woke you up, he said finally, and his voice was deep and soothing. The two women watched him go down the hall, and when I heard his steps on the front staircase, I rolled over and put my face in the pillow. I heard them turn off the lights and say goodnight to me. I heard them go to their bedrooms. I lay there for a long time listening for a sound downstairs, and then it came, the sound of the front door closing. I went downstairs and put on my hat, coat, boots. I followed his footsteps in the snow, down the front walk and across the road to the riverbank. He did not seem surprised to see me next to him. We stood side by side, hands in our pockets, breathing frost into the air. The river was filled from shore to shore with white heaps of ice, which cast blue shadows in the moonlight. This is the edge of America, he said, in a tone that seemed to answer a question I had just asked. There was a creak and crunch of ice as two floes below us scraped each other and jammed against the bank. You knew all week, didn't you? Your mother and your grandmother didn't know, but I knew that you could be counted on to know. I hadn't known until just then, but I guessed the unspeakable thing, that his career was falling apart, and I knew. I nodded. Years later, my mother told me what she had learned about the incident, not from him, but from another army wife. He had called a general a son of a bitch. That was all. I never knew what the issue was or whether he had been right or wrong. Whether the defense of the United States of America had been at stake or merely the pot in a card game. I didn't even know whether he had called the general a son of a bitch to his face or simply been overheard in an unguarded moment. I only knew that he had been given a seven instead of a nine on his efficiency report and then passed over for promotion. But that night I nodded, not knowing the cause but knowing the consequences, as we stood on the riverbank above the moonlit ice. I am looking at that thin, beautiful line of Canada, he said. I think I will go for a walk. No, I said. I said it again. No. I wanted to remember later that I had told him not to go. How long do you think it would take to go over and back, he said. Two hours. He rocked back and forth in his boots, looked up at the moon, then down at the river. 
I did not say anything. He started down the bank, sideways, taking long, graceful, sliding steps, which threw little puffs of snow in the air. He took his hands from his pockets and hopped from the bank to the ice. He tested his weight against the weight of the ice, flexing his knees. I watched him walk a few yards from the shore, and then I saw him rise in the air, his long legs scissoring the moonlight as he crossed from the edge of one flow to the next. He turned and waved to me, one hand making a slow arc. I could have said anything. I could have said, come back, or I love you. Instead, I called after him, be sure and write. The last thing I heard, long after I had lost sight of him far out on the river, was the sound of his laugh splitting the cold air. In the spring, he resigned his commission and we went back to Ohio. He used his savings to invest in a chain of hardware stores with my uncle. My uncle arranged the contracts with builders and plumbers and supervised the employees. My father controlled the inventory and handled the books. He had been a logistics officer, and all the skills he might have used in supervising the movement of land, air, and sea cargoes, or in calculating the disposition of several billion dollars worth of military supplies, were instead brought to bear on the deployment of nuts and bolts, plumber's joints and nipples, number two pine, contact paper, acrylic paint, caulking guns, and rubber dishpans. He learned a new vocabulary. Traffic builders, margins, end-cap displays, perf-board merchandisers, seasonal impulse items, and spoke it with the ostentation and faint amusement of a man who has just mastered a foreign language. But what I really want to know, Mr. Jenkins, I heard him tell a man on the telephone one day, is why you think the triple-gripper vegetable ripper would make a good loss-leader item in midwinter. He had been in the hardlines industry, as it was called, for six months, and I was making my first visit to his office, and then only because my mother had sent me there on the pretext of taking him a mid-morning snack during a busy Saturday. I was reluctant to confront him in his civilian role, afraid I would find him somehow diminished. In fact, although he looked incongruous among the reds, yellows, and blues which the previous owner had used to decorate the office, he sounded much like the man who had taught me to speak in complete sentences. Mr. Jenkins, I am not asking for a discourse on coleslaw. When he hung up, he winked at me and said, Your father is about to become the emperor of the building and housewares trade in Kilbuck, Ohio. I nodded and took a seat in a red and blue chair. Then he looked at his hand spread upon the spotless ink blotter and said, Of course, you know that I do not give a damn about the triple gripper vegetable ripper. I had skipped a grade and entered high school. I saw less and less of him because I ate dinner early so that I could go to play rehearsals, basketball games, dances. In the evenings, he sat in a green chair and smoked cigarettes, drank scotch, read books, the same kinds of books year after year. They were all about Eskimos and Arctic explorations, an interest he had developed during his tour in Greenland. Sometimes when I came in late and was in the kitchen making a snack, I watched him through the doorway. Often he looked away from the book and gazed toward the window. He would strike a match and let it burn to his thumb and fingertip, then wave it out. He would raise the glass but not drink from it. I think he must have imagined himself to be in the Arctic during those moments, a warrior tracking across the ice for bear or seal. Sometimes he was waiting for me to join him. 
He wanted to tell me about the techniques the Eskimos had developed for survival, the way they stitched up skins to make them watertight vessels. He became obsessive on the subject of meat. The Eskimo diet was nearly all protein. Eat meat, he said. Two professors at Columbia had tested the value of the Eskimo diet by eating nothing but caribou for a year and claimed they were healthier at the end of the experiment than they had been before. Later, when I went to college, he developed the habit of calling me long distance when my mother and grandmother had gone to bed and he was alone downstairs with a drink. Are you getting enough protein? He asked me once at three in the morning. It was against dorm rules to put through calls after midnight except in cases of emergency, but his deep, commanding voice was so authoritative. This is Gemma Jackson's father, and I must speak with her immediately, that it was for some time believed on my corridor that the people in my family were either accident-prone or suffering from long, terminal illnesses. He died the summer I received my master's degree. I had accepted a teaching position at a high school in Chicago, and I went home for a month before school began. He was overweight and short of breath. He drank too much, smoked too many cigarettes. The doctor told him to stop. My mother told him. My grandmother told him. My grandmother was upstairs watching television, and my mother and I were sitting on the front porch. He was asleep in the green chair with a book in his lap. I left the porch to go to the kitchen to make a sandwich, and as I passed by the chair, I heard him say, Ah, ah. I saw his fist rise to his chest. I saw his eyes open and dilate in the lamplight. I knelt beside him. Are you okay? I said. Are you dreaming? We buried him in a small cemetery near the farm where he was born. In the eulogy, he was remembered for having survived the first wave of the invasion of Normandy. He was admired for having been the proprietor of a chain of excellent hardware stores. He didn't have to do this, my mother said after the funeral. He did this to himself. He was a good man, said my grandmother. He put a nice roof over our heads. He sent us to Europe twice. Afterward, I went alone to the cemetery. I knelt beside the heaps of wilting flowers, mostly roses and gladiolas, and one wreath of red, white, and blue carnations. Above me, the maple pods spun through the sunlight like wings, and in the distance the corn trumpeted green across the hillsides. I touched the loose black soil at the edge of the flowers. Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog. I could remember the beginning of the alphabet, up through Mike and Nan. I could remember the end. X-ray, yoke, zebra. I was his only child, and he taught me what he knew. I wept then, but not because he had gone back to Ohio to read about the Eskimos and sell the artifacts of civilized life to homeowners and builders. I wept because, when I was twelve years old, I had stood on a snowy riverbank as he became a shadow on the ice and waited to see whether he would slip between the cracking flows into the water. That was Taya Obrecht reading Abel Baker Charlie Dog by Stephanie Vaughn. It was first published in The New Yorker in 1978 and collected in Sweet Talk, which will be reissued in 2012. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. 
They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that, that first section of the story gives us an enormous amount of information. First, we see Gemma's father as she sees him, this sort of tall, awesome, all-powerful figure cutting across the parade ground. And, th- and then we see him falter, thrown off course by a gust of wind. And that gust of wind, which is symbolic of all of the other things that are going to throw his life off course that day. We also get all these family tensions between Gemma's grandmother, her mother, her grandmother and her father, How does Vaughn manage to telegraph so much information in two or three hundred words? You know, I think that right away she manages to um, get a curiosity out of the reader, but also a sense of kinship as well. And suddenly, uh, in a very deft way, you you absorb all this information by implication, the the dislike of the grandmother, you know, the mother's history uh, of having dated a minister. You know, there's all these hidden regrets, you know, with the fact that he's now a successful radio minister in Ohio. Um, (laughs) And and I think that that's, that's the beauty of short fiction in general, the fact that if you can do that, I mean, that's the way you have to do it. And she's just masterful at it. There's such a subtle duality in in Vaughn's portrait of the father here. He's he's a god to Gemma. He's also a failure. And as we learn later, when the father gives Gemma the the lecture about speaking properly and, and appropriately, he has just at that moment learned that he's destroyed his own career by speaking inappropriately and, exactly, and you know yeah. calling the general a son of a bitch. I feel as though there's a lot of irony in the story that that you can really only get when you read it for the second or third time. Yes. There's so much planted here. Definitely. And I think that, you know, that that last line about, you know, the source of her grief really turns the story on its head and it somehow brings it all together. You come to understand through Gemma's experience that very acute sense of wanting to admire a parent, wanting to follow in a parent's footsteps and then realizing the flaws with the advice that you're being given. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you know the the parent perhaps did not you know or the or the or the mentor figure did not follow their own advice, the the failure of a mm-hmm. life based on that, and then you know the questioning of the of the validity of the the relationship, um, and that all sort of comes together in that in that final sentence, and then if you go back through the story, you 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 find the links to it. It's it's really quite wonderful how it how it works. What do you think she is doing in that last paragraph with the the flashback to that night on the ice flow? Her father didn't die that night. He came out of it okay. And in fact, he has just died. So the grief should be more present and less historical. Why are we going back in time at that point? I think because that is a is a moment of a, of a particular kind of loss of innocence. When your curiosity of the world is satisfied by observing other people's disasters. 
it's a sort of a terrible thing to realize about oneself that, you know, you've gone from being this child that, that accepts the world as it is to sort of a, a more adult human being that tries to process how they're going to function in their own life through the mistakes of others. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a key moment in her life and in her relationship to her father that that night on the ice. Uh, you know, she's going to see if he makes it back. Right. And she, you know, she says, I said no so that I could tell myself later that I'd said no. So the guilt is that she didn't cling to him with love, but instead stood back with some kind of emotional voyeurism. Yeah, exactly. That day, the entire day, was such a turning point in her life and in her father's life. And, of course, everything went wrong, you know, from the the spoiled lunch to the broken scotch bottle to Gemma's cancer (laughs) panic. And it it seems as though in the midst of all this, we have the metaphor of, of... Niagara Falls and going over the falls. And if anything, that was the day when everything in their lives went over the falls, in a sense. Do you think that's why we have the falls in the story? I think so. And then the the different conditions of the survivors, you know, they go into the museum and they see, you know, who went over in a barrel. And then the, you know, the guy in the in the capsule who broke every bone in his body and your mm-hmm. condition when you come out on, on the other side. And there's, you know, there's different ways to emerge from that kind of ordeal as well. And then the the story with the barge and, you know, the presence of the thinking man who's who's mentioned twice and this notion of if you learn to disengage in a certain way from your environment and you, you're you one with yourself in your mind, you can overcome this, you know, and then the man who goes crazy. So there's all these casualties of the falls and Gemma's father and Gemma herself are, are aware of them and it's this underpinning of the of the story the idea of going over and then how you come out the other end. Yeah, yeah. And she has, of course, that fantasy of these dead bodies kind of washing by That's right. by her window in the night. That's right. Sort of ever-present sense of danger and possible morbidity. It just seems to be hovering outside. Why do you think we get this anecdote about uh, Gemma's fear of breast cancer in the middle of a story that's mostly about her father? What is breast development doing here? <laughs> You know, I was puzzled by it when I uh, when I first read the story. I think that the physical development aspect there and the idea of concern for the self, it, it underscores the mental change that's about to happen out there on, on the ice, the sort of progression from being a protected child who's also protective of a parent and obviously the power dynamic between Gemma and her father, which, you know, allows her to be the person who stops this cataclysmic fight that's happening, it goes back to this idea of self-realization. Mm-hmm. And Gemma's, Gemma's becoming a woman. Exactly, yeah. And her father is sort of set apart as this symbol of masculinity. And he senses this, this wall coming up between them, I suppose. But for, for Gemma, the father is so bound up with the idea of language, you know, from him teaching her the alphabet, the military alphabet, or lecturing her on diction. And then even at the end, how he, he acquires this new vocabulary of hardware. Um, And even when he is sort of downtrodden, he has this authoritative, resonant voice. You know, he's a drunk calling her up in the middle of the night, but no one (laughs) can say no to him. He's so commanding. What do you think Vaughn is doing with that idea? I I loved the idea of the development of personality through the development of vocabulary. And I loved that the father, his dignity doesn't diminish because he gets a new vocabulary, he he simply by gaining authority over it, he retains the same dignity that he had over the you know the a previous vocabulary and a way of speaking and even when it's vegetable grippers and or you know, exactly. vegetable peelers instead of uh, <laughs> nuclear missile silos. 
And it sort of speaks to this idea of language and conduct and, and again, formation of an individual identity and the things that you ingrain as part of yourself uh, and choose to ingrain as part of yourself. It's the, uh, the, the aspect of your personality that you can control and sort of helps you, I guess, as you go over the falls. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it's the, uh, the thinking man's salvation this idea of self-control in whatever possible way, and his is through language, and so hers becomes through language as well. Do you think that Gemma's going to be a writer? I think that there's a sort of delightful meta aspect to that because obviously the story has been written, and that's how we, <laughs> we absorb it. Um, and how whatever kind of distance you put between the reality of a writer writing a story about a character who's not, you know, there's the idea of language works into it so much that I think the implication is definitely there that Gemma will be a writer, that it's, you know, that her work is in language. And I mean, she's a teacher. It doesn't say it, yeah, what she's a teacher of, what. but um, the assumption is that it's definitely language related. Why can't she write letters to her father when he's away? And why can't she connect to his letters? I think that it's this idea of language just as language as opposed to language being tied to a personality or a loved one. And her cry to him as he goes across the ice is, don't forget to write. And it's (laughs) this, I guess, the the distance between them in the act of of writing to one another is uh, is a you know physical manifestation of the barrier that's going up between them mm-hmm. emotionally. Yeah, she's gonna she's gonna take what she's learned about language and use it somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Taya. Thank you, Deborah. Taya Obrecht is the author of The Tiger's Wife, published by Random House. You can subscribe to this podcast or download more than 50 previous episodes in the iTunes store. Also, the tablet edition of the magazine is available in the App Store, and it's free to subscribers. In the tablet edition, you can hear authors read their own stories. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com, or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.